Welcome to this week's presentation on immunology and rheumatology. I've kept the lecture pretty short as you will find that there are many slides for this presentation. I left the presentation intact for you to review, but the reading is also very short for this module. I have a separate presentation for the immunodeficiencies, which is also relatively short. All right, let's get started. So when we talk about the immune system, we have some, some main cells that are, are going to play into these reactions. So you have your B lymphocytes, T lymphocytes, CD4 cells, as well as your natural killer cells. One of the key things that we do see in anaphylaxis is a histamine response. And that's the most important performed mediator that we'll see. And typically what happens is we have these uh, mediators that affect both your vasculature, your heart, and your lungs. So in the systemic vasculature, what you're going to see is a vasodilatation with increased vascular permeability. In the heart, that histamine response is going to cause uh, spasms of the coronary artery, which may decrease its blood flow. You may have changes in AV conduction or have some arrhythmias. You may have a shortened diastolic period, which causes a decrease in the resting of the heart. And then with all that combined, you can have a lower venous return, poor cardiac output, and even myocardial ischemia in some, changes, in some instances. Now for the lungs, we're going to see, or in the, in the pulmonary system, we're going to see, um, we can see laryngeal edema. We can see increased vascular permeability where we see more swelling in the upper airways. We can see a bronchospasm in the lower airways with, uh, due to the um, bronchial smooth muscle contraction. And in the lower airways, we're going to have this increase of uh, mucus production um, and viscosity of that mucus, which can cause uh, significant bronchial mucus plugging. Now, some of our, our non-life-threatening non manifestations, we see you know, your typical, you know, you got this red raised rash or this urticaria, you can have angioedema, they can have um, increased mucus production, they can have sneezing, coughing, itching in the back of the throat, um, some GI symptoms even. When we look at some of the causes for these uh, anaphylactic reactions, there's quite a few. So they can be from foods such as peanuts, eggs, soy. They can be from medications, um, primarily some of our antibiotics, our penicillins and our cephalosporins, um, even some of our NSAIDs. They can be due to contact with um, text, uh, uh, sub, uh, substance such as latex. Um, they can um, uh, animal stings such as bee stings, hornets, fire ants. Um, even some of the preservatives that we use in our vaccines can cause some of these reactions um, in patients. Some of our non-immune mediated responses can be from someone having a reaction to say a blood product or another um, other uh, blood products or immunoglobulins. Um, they can be from contrast medias. Um, so be, be aware that there's a multitude of different types of uh, causative agents that can, um, that can, that can trigger an anaphylactic, an anaphylactic reaction. Again, here's more uh, information on the presentation. Some of our more, some of our more severe symptoms we could see um, such as shock, and um, tachycardia, tachypnea, confusion, dizziness, seizures, um, hypotension, um, which would cause us to provide an, an additional amount of supportive um, therapy. When we look at um, 
doing our diagnostic workup on these patients. Um, first and foremost, you want to make sure that you have a stable ABC. So you want to make sure their airway breathing and circulation is under control. If not, you're going to need to provide supportive care. Um, the long-term treatment for these patients, we can do allergy testing, but you're not going to be doing allergy testing in the ICU. This usually requires them going to an allergist and going into their clinic and getting tested for each and, and multitude of different types of of um, allergens that cause their reactions and then being able to put them on therapies to help treat that. One of the biggest medications or the first line medication you're going to use is called epinephrine. And we'll give this intramuscularly um, mainly because we want it to be a slow sustained release to help treat them through this period of anaphylaxis. Um, when we give patients medications IV dose, um, one, it has a lot of cardiovascular effects immediately. And two, it's more of a short acting um, dose. So you have to redose them more frequently. Uh, one key thing to remember is that we have two different dosing concentrations for um, epinephrine. You have the 1 to 1,000, which comes in the brown vial, usually in a, in a separate vial. And you have the 1 to 10,000 concentration, which we see most commonly in the Brista jets on the crash carts. Now, the difference between those, as you look at the uh, at, at the cursor here on the screen, you will notice that the, um, the 1 to 1,000 concentration provides a much smaller volume. So when giving this intramuscularly, you're not giving a large volume of epinephrine to a patient. Whereas if we contrast that with the IV dose, it's a much larger volume, almost 10 times larger, um, it's 0.1 uh, mLs per kilo. So just <clears throat> keep in mind that you want to be able to um, provide the correct dose for the patient um, and do it as comfortable as possible. Some of our second line treatments are going to be Benadryl. You can give your steroids. Uh, Benadryl is going to help block the histamine reaction. Um, your steroids are going to help um, uh, with the smooth muscles, uh, relaxation in the lungs to allow them to breathe easier. You can give them medications that are supportive, such as albuterol, which helps open up the lower airways. But no second line agent is a substitute for epinephrine. So if you were to be asked, what is the first line treatment for an anaphylactic reaction? The answer is epinephrine. Medications to be careful of when you're giving epinephrine for someone that has an anaphylactic reaction are twofold, your ACE inhibitors and your beta, um, beta blockers. Both of them can uh, affect how epinephrine is going to be um, responding, uh, how the patient would respond to epinephrine in the patient. One quick note on self-injectables, you know, over the last couple of years, um, epinephrine pens have been have become ex incredibly expensive for patients, and patients have become more and more hesitant to take these medications um, because, I mean, you know, if it's a thousand dollars an EpiPen, they don't want to give it um, prematurely, or if they didn't need to give it because it could be a waste. The other downside to having something that expensive is they're required to carry these EpiPens, and often they they tend to expire before they ever get to give them. So now they have spent a thousand dollars on a on a treatment that they're never going to use. Um, so a lot of times when patients are having an anaphylactic reaction, you may have to encourage them to take out the EpiPen and use it, and they need to use it in the situations which they're trained in. So when you're discharging someone from home uh, to home um, from the hospital after an anaphylactic reaction and you're, you're prescribing an EpiPen, you need to do good education with not only the patient but with the family to determine when is a good time to use the EpiPen. You never want someone to come in that's so bad. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've had patients come in to the ICU and the parents still want to know when was the best time to give them the EpiPen? When should I have given them the Epi? Um, so make sure you do good education with your families on, on that standpoint. Next, we want to talk about juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Now, Judo, there are many different types and classifications of JIA. 
the major categories would be your oligo and your polyarticular arthritis. Your oligo arthritis is usually the, the more common. It affects about 50 to 60% of your clients. You have your polyarticular, which affects about 30 to 55% of your clients. And the big difference between those two categories is that your oligoarthritis, uh, oligoarticular affects fewer than five joints for at least six weeks, and your polyarticular affects five or more for at least uh, six weeks. When we look at systemic um, reactions from, from uh, JIA, we have um, two, two major illness, or is actually one major illness that we're concerned with, and it goes by the name of macro, uh, MAS, or macrophage activating syndrome, or HLH, which is hemophagocytic histocytosis. Um, and this is a severe systemic response. Um, usually it's triggered by a viral illness in patients with JIA, and they have um, uh, several characteristical features for this. So they'll have a, a, a persistently high fever over a period of time. They usually have at least three cell lines on their CBC that are affected. So it's usually anemia with uh, neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. They, they can have a relatively elevated uh, ferritin level. And there's a, there's a list of uh, uh, major and minor criteria for this. They often have an elevated um, um, NK um, level, natural killer cell level. And we usually send those off to a specialty lab. I believe it's in Cincinnati. And they'll look to see if they, they meet the inclusion criteria for, um, for HLH. They'll also be, they, it also can require a bone marrow biopsy, which is usually done by the, the HEMOC team. So be, be on the lookout for this type of reaction and response. This can be a fatal response if not treated um, early and aggressively. Um, and it's one thing that this is, the, this is generally the one time you would see these patients um, in areas such as the ICU or step-down areas. Other types of arthritis I want you guys to review and look up are your uh, enthesitis-related arthritis as well as your uh, psoriatic arthritis. And some patients fall into categories such as the undifferentiated, um, where they don't meet all the criteria for the different types of um, um, juvenile um Ju juvenile idiopathic arthritis, and then they fit into this um, particular category. Our goals of therapy are um, really pain control and to, to prevent um, damage from or damage or disability from the disorder. So our, usually our first line therapy is going to be a, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory such as ibuprofen or naproxen. Um, if you're going to put someone on long-term dosing of these medications, we need to make sure that we have good uh, monitoring of their kidneys and their liver. And you definitely don't want to put any patient on these medications if they have uh, renal failure or elevated creatinine levels. In about three, three to six months, um, monitoring these patients, you may want to start doing x-rays to evaluate if there's any type of destructive disease um, that may be present. And you may need to start other medications um, such as your uh, methotrexate, um, which will help block some of the autoimmune response. Um, to these to JIA and the other one that's now real popular in the in the in the media the hydrochloroquine um, which is used routinely to treat patients with JIA or lupus um, we could see them um, started on those medications as well next we'll talk about lupus which is a multi-system inflammatory autoimmune disease which is characterized by autoantibodies um, to nuclear and cellular components um, often affects um, 
non-Caucasian non-Caucasian populations such as Asians, Native Americans, African Americans, and Hispanics. Usually, we see this in patients that have um, a decrease, or um, you can see this. Uh, it's you see this mostly in females, um, but males with Klinefelter syndrome um, may have an increased frequency for um, SLE. When we look at the presentation for patients with lupus, the most common manifestation is the, the malar rash, or also known as the butterfly rash. They have arthritis in the presence of uh, uh, fever, fatigue, and weight loss. Many of them can present with a lupus nephritis. The, in fact, 29 to 80% of them uh, may have that. They, might also have, um, they may also have coagulation abnormalities as well. For our diagnostic testing, we'll do an ANA, which is the most common, which is your autoantibody or your anti-nuclear antibodies. Um, but keep in mind, 10 to 15% of healthy children have a positive ANA. Um, the more specific studies that we could do are the double-stranded DNA and the anti-Smith antibodies. You can also look at uh, anti-inflammatory markers such as your, uh, S um, your erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Many of these patients may present with an anemia, leukopenia, and other types of cytopenias. When we look at our treatments, we have mild lupus um, that do not have kidney disease or other major uh, organ involvement. Um, we'll treat them mostly with our NSAIDs as well as the hydrochloroquine. Uh, patients with more moderate to severe disease, which usually involve um, uh, uh, they can involve other organs such as minor pericarditis, pneumonitis, uh, hemolytic anemia, uh, thrombocytopenia, renal disease, and even some mild CNS disease. And these patients will be treated with steroids, hydrochloroquine, methotrexate, azithropine, um, azathioprine, sorry, and um, they can also be given mycophenolate as well. Um, the treatment is for severe patients is usually life-threatening organ systems. For severe cases, it's usually life-threatening, and these patients usually have a severe hemolytic anemia, CNS disease. They have a, a profound lup lupus nephritis. Um, they'll be treated aggressively with high-dose steroids, um, as well as um, other immunosuppressive agents such as cyclophosphamide, uh, methotrexate, uh, mycophenolate, or even rituximab. Um, in some cases, they may require uh, plasmapheresis or IVIG um, and maybe need to be placed on anticoagulation um, uh, therapy. And in, and in severe, severe cases, you know, when, if the renal damage is, is significant, they may require um, dialysis or renal transplant. Next, we'll talk about vasculitis, which is relatively uncommon in children with the exception of Kawasaki's disease and uh, Henach-Shonlin purpura or HSP. Um, the diagnosis depends on their symptomology, lab findings, and the exclusion of other diagnoses. And when we look at vasculitis, it's, you know, they categorize them in, as a small, small vessel, medium vessel, or large vessel. But all vasculitis disease have the same symptomology of vague findings such as malaise, fever, and pain. For large vessels, um, the more common that we'll see is uh, Takayasu arteritis, which is uh, also known as the pulseless disease. It's most common uh, cause of giant cell or large vessel vasculitis in young clients. Um, it has been linked to um, infections with mycobacterium tuberculosis, 
Um, again, your signs and symptoms would be malaise, fever, nocturnal sweating, elevations in acute inflammatory markers, weight loss. On your physical exam, you'll um, see uh, your upper extremity systolic blood pressures uh, will vary. They can have a subclavian um, artery or abdominal aorta brui. Um, they can have a decrease or absent brachial arterial pulse, which is why it's also known as the pulseless disease. And um, you can develop, they can develop uh, vessel stenosis or occlusions as well, which can lead to other problems such as uh, stroke, hypertension, or heart failure. Plan of care of these patients would be to evaluate those vessels with uh, ultrasound, um, do x-rays looking for calcifications or widening of the larger vessels. Um, they can have biopsies done to assess, you know, to, to, to look at the vessel uh, wall structures. We would place them on uh, cyto cytotoxic drugs, again, such as methotrexate, the azathioprine, um, cyclophosphamide. Um, if they have occlusions or narrowing of stenotic areas, they may require surgical intervention. They definitely do need a wide variety of consultations, such as the ones listed below as cardiology, cardiovascular surgery, hematology, and critical care. The more common one that we'll see in children is medium is a medium vessel, which is Kawasaki's disease. And we talked about this a little bit in the cardiac um, section. And it's a medium muscular uh, arterial um, vasculitis, uh, which has multi-system um, uh, presentation. Usually it's seen in clients um, younger than two years of age. And they have this mucotaneous lymph node syndrome. Um, it, it's evenly um, seen in both uh, males and females. Um, it has a greater prevalence in Japan, which again, Kawasaki's disease, Dr. Kawasaki, I believe, was the one that diagnosed this in Japan. Um, and it may have some environmental or infectious agents um, and genetic factors that may influence the presentation. So usually these children have an acute phase that lasts about one to two weeks, um, then a subacute phase, which lasts about three to four weeks, and then they go into this convalescent phase uh, from the fourth through the eight weeks of the disease course. Um, your, your classical clinical criteria, and again, this is something that you have to know, um, they can have a bilateral conjunctivitis. Uh, they can have changes or uh, chap, uh, they can have redness or chapping to the lips and the mouth often described as a strawberry tongue, cracked lips, or oral erythema. They can have this polymorphous skin rash. They can have um, reddening of the palms and the soles of their feet. And they can have this indurated edema um, with this acute cervical lymphadenopathy. Now, not every child has all this criteria. Often we will see children that meet some of this criteria, not all of it, which sometimes can make it difficult or challenging to diagnose Kawasaki's disease. Um, but with a, f a full evaluation, we should be able to monitor them appropriately. Other findings you might see would be a murmur, a gallop, muffled heart sounds. They can have some GI symptoms of uh, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. They can also have some joint pain and swelling. Um, they can have redness um, and crusting to the, to the skin, especially around the fingernails. Uh, they can have cough, rhinorrhea, leukocytosis. So one of the things that we'll do to assess these kids is we'll look at their CBC, we'll look at an uh, ESR, CRP, we'll do a chest x-ray, 
Um, often these children get referred to cardiology and we'll get a baseline echo. And the key factor that we're looking here is to look at the coronary arteries because with this particular dis um, disorder, we can see um, uh, dilation of the coronary arteries, which can be, um, which can develop these aneurysms down the road and be problematic. So often what we'll do is we'll treat these children, monitor their baseline, get a baseline first, and then they'll do serial follow-up um, echoes to look at the coronary arteries, to look for any changes and do comparisons um, across the studies. So the big um, therapy that we'll do is usually um, um, IVIG with uh, high-dose aspirin. Um, and usually we'll give them the high-dose aspirin until they're um, afebrile for 48 to 72 hours, and then we decrease the dose of aspirin. And we'll continue that for six to eight weeks. And if there's any coronary abnormalities, um, the ASA will be continued indefinitely. So they'll be, they'll be like a regular cardiac patient where they go on um, aspirin therapy to, to help with platelet aggregation reduction. Here you can read through the risk level one, two, three, four, and five. Again, these children will require lifelong um, um, follow-ups with cardiology just to make sure, and, and infectious disease to make sure, one, that they're properly treated, and two, that there's no coronary um, artery changes.